0: This morning, we're going to take some time together in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and so as you make your way there, you may actually want to start at the first chapter, because I want to do some recap here in just a moment. This book of Thessalonians is one of the earliest letters that Paul would have written, and uh, it's, very, it's a very reflective letter as he is writing this with, you can tell, just very heartfelt meaning to it as he's writing to the Christian community there in Thessalonica. And he's writing to all of these believers in the churches there. And this is a a really heartfelt letter that Paul is going to come alongside and really encourage them as they're facing a variety of challenges in the midst of their ministry. You know, trying to do right, uh, trying to honor God, trying to learn more and know more about who God is, trying to develop a personal meaningful relationship with God, they're facing a variety of difficulties and challenges. And so, Paul is also using this letter to provide a a unique blend of encouragement, Uh, encouraging words that he's going to refer to and uh, and just kind of come to a place where he's going to use a unique blend of encouragement and instruction while giving pastoral care. Paul dearly loves these people. And though He's not there day in and day out with them, He writes this letter so that He can encourage them to be faithful in the midst of adversity and to look for the return of Jesus Christ and then also some real practical aspects of Christian living. I really appreciated the music today. I always love coming together in new churches that I have not been a part of yet, and and to be able to just join as a body of believers in lifting our voices to worship to God. And the songs this morning really helped to build up to what the text is going to tell us here in the book of Thessalonians. And it was neat to hear some of your input of things that you're Uh, thankful for, things that you are rejoicing in the Lord about. And I I was waiting for somebody, and I almost had my daughters just say it for me, but nobody said that you were thankful for tacos. I was just waiting, and I was debating, and then I thought, no, it's a very serious time. I don't don't think anybody's thankful for tacos in this moment, Um, and so uh, we had to skip over that. But it is really neat to think about what God is doing in our lives, And in the midst of adversity and challenges, we can still proclaim, "'Blessed be the name of the Lord.'" And that song was really a reflection on even Job's life and all that Job faced and having it all and losing it all and coming to a place where he said, "'All that I had was of God, and I returned to him with nothing except for the very life that he has given me.'" And in all of that, he could say, "'Blessed be the name of the Lord.'" And so, this truth carries on throughout the Bible, and Paul is going to reference even that idea. His remarks on their faith and example to many start right at the beginning of the letter. Would you look with me at 1 Thessalonians 1? I want to read the first seven verses of this letter, a typical greeting of Paul as he would write these letters all throughout the New Testament. And he says, Paul, sylvanus that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace, okay? So, a very normal greeting, we would probably bring it to dear so-and-so. That's our typical greeting. He's got his typical greeting. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So, these were very dear people to Paul to the point where he's referencing them by name in prayer consistently to God in an attitude of gratitude. And then he says in verse 4, "'For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake?' And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers. Now, in chapter number two, Paul is going to continue his writing of this letter, and he reviews his relationship with the people there in Thessalonica. In verse number two of chapter two, he says, "'But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi,' As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, we would know that there was conflict there not only in Philippi, but also in Thessalonica when they first came, and and when they were first developing and planting the church and reaching people with the gospel, they faced a ton of conflict. You can see that in Acts 17. But in verse number 3, he continues with his letter to the church there in Thessalonica, and he says, "'For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. This was not any man-made belief system. This was not for the lifting up of Paul or Silas or even Timothy. This was not for them to look good. This was not done in any man-made way, but just,' in verse 4, "'as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel.'" so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, Christians here today, we have been entrusted with that gospel message that we are to tell. And we know the gospel message is offensive, it's abrasive, it's hard for some people to see the accountability that is there, that that there's a greater being that I am in, in, I, I need to have this answer to. There's a greater being that that has a rule over all creation. And so, that gospel message is something that we must take and proclaim. And as we've been entrusted, that's what Paul did to those in Thessalonica. And then in chapter 3, Paul is encouraged by Timothy's report about the Thessalonians because he says in verse number 4 of chapter 3, "'For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction,' just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul. Is that a place where he's wondering, are they surviving? How are they doing? Has the tempter come in and and blinded them, taken them away? Has he he tricked them? Has he duped them? Has he deceived them? And these Christians, though, would not lose their eternal security and salvation. Paul was concerned that they had wandered away from the faith. And so Paul writes this, and dear Timothy brings report back, and in verse number 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you... And has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and on all of our affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And so, Paul is going to now urge them in chapter number four as he continues his letter to them to live to please God in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4. This is an an urging to live their life that would be honoring to God, a life that would be pleasing, a, a life that strives to be holy. And then he remembers the hope of the resurrection and urges them in chapter number 5 to be prepared for that. He encourages them, be prepared for the the coming and the hope of the resurrection of Christ, and no one knows when the Lord will return. And as the church today, we look and long for that that day when Christ will return, and all of this life will, the toil of this life will be over, and the presence of sin will be no more, and and we'll be rescued and and freed from that for all eternity. And uh, boy, we look and long for that. And so, now in chapter number 5, Paul, in his final instructions with this letter, he pleads with them to be an encourager to others. You see that in verses 12 through 15. And then he, he gives this encouragement to cultivate their spirit-filled lives with those three simple verses that we've already read and quoted together. So, would you look with me at our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5, so much of the letter has built up to this words of instruction, encouragement, and now for pastoral care that comes in. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So this morning, let's look at this idea, this truth here in the Scriptures, the letter that Paul has written to cultivate a Spirit-filled life. Let's build it, let's encourage it and let's live that out. No one said it would be easy, but it is very worth it. And my thought here at the very beginning is to the church of one hope, if we truly desire to be healthy, we must see that this joyfulness, this prayerfulness, and thankfulness need to be essential truths in our Christian life that we live out. They need to not be multiple-choice picks They don't need to be, that's probably just for the first 10 days of a new year, and then reality hits, and I'm just going to be me. No, this becomes essential parts of the Christian journey, this rejoicing, this prayerfulness, and this thankfulness. And so, the points here this morning They're not complicated or very creative. You've already seen them in your notes. You're like, it's just copy and paste. He just took the text, right? These are not creative points, and I'm sorry about that. But let's just see what the Bible says with these three simple points. In verse 16, rejoice always. And I love what Paul does here with his decision under the inspiration of God to use the absolute word of always. Now, we need to be careful in our relationships here on earth that we don't use such absolute terms or absolute words in our relationships because sometimes when we do, it gets us in a little bit of friction, a little bit of trouble. Like, you know, a husband and wife, when they use the word always or all the time or every time or everyone, we say to our spouse, you do that every time. Like, really, do I do that every time? I mean, is that just all you're remembering, is that I do it always, every time? Or maybe we say to our kids, you always try to get away with this. Now, some of you are thinking, yes, they do. They always try to get away with this. And we use these absolute terms. There may have been that one time when they didn't, all right? And so they're going to remember that. We need to as well. Or maybe we say to someone, everyone, everyone thinks this about you. And these are all words of exaggeration, and they're very dramatic. But Paul is neither of these things. He's not being exaggerative or dramatic because he's being realistic here. He should know what it means to rejoice always. He knows what it means to live a life of affliction and difficulty. He knows what it means to rejoice always. Do you remember in chapter number two of this letter when he said, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi? You remember the story. They had faced tribulation and trials, persecution. He's referencing back to he and Silas when they were thrown into prison unjustly. They were thrown into prison. The people of Philippi didn't like what they were doing, and they had actually just healed a young woman who was demon-possessed And as they brought healing to her, freed her from this oppression and this involvement, now they are being thrown into prison. And they're there in prison, and they're facing being beaten. They're facing bad circumstances. And in their mind, maybe they're thinking, like, we're just doing what God's called us to do. God has called us to Philippi in this moment to reach people with the truth of the gospel and we're doing God's will, we're doing God's work, we're doing it God's way, and we're seeing great things come from it, and now opposition we face, and that opposition gets us beaten and thrown into prison? Well, when we see this, we would find that they, in those moments, chose to rejoice always. In Acts chapter 16, is the story as it unfolds in verses 22 through 27. They were beaten and in prison, and do you remember their response? With midnight snoring. No, that's your husband, all right? With midnight praises, singing, rejoicing. I mean, I would think to walk into that prison area that night and to hear Paul and Silas complaining to one another about their circumstances, like that's, that's what we do. I mean, I'm complaining this morning because it's freezing outside, but I'm going to get back to Florida this week, and I'm going to be like, why can't it be cold? It's winter. Why is it 75 degrees? We always find something to complain about. It seems that in our life, we're never content and satisfied. And certainly, when we're facing opposition to what we feel like God has called us to do, then we look for the easiest route. Where's the next escape? I mean, this certainly can't be God's will. Paul leans over to Silas and says, did God bring us to Philippi to rot in a prison cell? Silas says, I can't believe I even followed your idea, Paul. I knew we shouldn't have messed with that young lady who was demon-possessed. Leave her alone so we can do our mission. We were supposed to be in so-and-so tomorrow. We were supposed to be doing such-and-such tomorrow, but now we're sitting in prison? That was not the conversation that night. There was no complaining. There was no escape route in their mind. They were not trying to develop plan B. They just simply were content in the sovereignty of God where He had placed them for this moment in the journey. And instead of bucking God and facing more conflict, they just began to praise, rejoice always. And you know the story, the miraculous release. The prison cell is is shaken, the doors are wide open, and, and they have the opportunity to flee. But even in that moment, instead of looking for the easy way out, the jailer is worried. He's depressed. He is, everything is falling apart as his fingertips. He knows he's going to have to give an answer for the release of all these prisoners. And as he tries to take his life, Paul and Silas, wait, 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 gospel moment, don't do this. And he gives them a message of hope. They give him a reason to live, a reason to look to God for strength. And so, despite the suffering, Paul and Silas found joy in their faith and praised God. You know, Christian, this is not a reaction. This is actually something they prepared for. This was something that Paul and Silas lived in the good so that they could live it out in the bad. This was something that was real to them. This was not a prayer daily, God, don't lead us into conflict, don't lead us into problems, don't bring afflictions or or issues into my life, that's not what I need right now, that's not what I want right now. No, that wasn't their preparation. They were always rejoicing so that when conflict came or issues came or afflictions came, they were just doing what became natural for them. The church at Philippi became a church of great influence because of their reaction. So not only did you have this young lady who was demon-possessed who had been rescued and redeemed by the gospel and now a converted young lady who becomes a part of the church at Philippi, now you have the jailer who's going to commit suicide and the gospel just penetrates his heart, changes his direction, he gets saved in all of his house and then we also see Paul and Silas leading an influential woman named Lydia, a seller of purple. And in Acts chapter number 16, her household also believed, and she became an intricate part to the early church there at Philippi. Now, what does all of that mean? Why is that important? Because the church at Philippi became God's church because Paul and Silas decided to rejoice always. We think about that for our lives. God wants to take our bad and make it powerful for His glory. He, he wants to use our story. He wants, to, he wants to take our circumstances and our experiences and use them as a powerful tool for His glory. He wants to take our suffering and turn it into rejoicing. And ultimately, He wants the gospel message to be clear through how we respond to life's messy moments. Now, in 2024… It, I'm hoping it's pretty safe to say that none in this group are going to be in prison or jail. I hope that's safe to say. We're not too sure what we'll lead this year, but um, I'm pretty sure that you're not going to be hauled off to prison because you shared the gospel. We still are in a decent place of the United States that doesn't uh, throw people in jail for believing the truth of the Bible. But there are going to be messy moments in 2024. There are going to be disappointing situations. There are going to be heartaches and heartbreaks. There are going to be confusion and chaos. There's going to be a lot of things that get our mind and emotions playing with us. And we're going to have to decide, am I going to rejoice always in this? I appreciated the answer. I believe somebody said, when Pastor David was asking about what can we rejoice in, somebody said challenges, didn't they? And um, and I thought, boom, that's it. That's right. To rejoice in the challenges. Remember, Paul would write to that church in Philippi, the church with the 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 prison the the, uh, the jailer who. Almost committed suicide, but the gospel changed him. The church that has Lydia, a very very influential leader, The, the, the young lady who had been demon possessed and life has been transformed, he would write this letter later to that congregation and he would say, Rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. Oh, let me reiterate it. Again, I say, Rejoice. He would write to those believers who saw Paul and Silas in such great affliction and yet would find great reason to rejoice. He would say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That means let your gentleness, your patience be visible to everybody who knows you and sees you function. Do people at your workplace see you to be a reasonable person, a patient, a meek person? person? Or do people in your sphere of influence, whether it's on your college campus, at your university, or in your workplace, or in your family, or in your hangouts, or with your hobbies, do they see you as a hothead? Do they see you as a fast trigger? Do they see you as somebody that's always got conflict in your life? You're, you're talking about the manager or the boss, the employer, the owner. You're talking about the professor or the leadership. or you're, you're just talking about people because you just have a problem. Everybody rubs you wrong, and you just have conflict in your life. And Paul would say to us through that letter of Philippians is that let, let people around you see your gentleness. Let them see your patience function in this way. Then he would say, do not be anxious about anything, but in in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ. That's a key is that our heart and mind would be guarded because of Jesus Christ and his active work in your life. That's experiencing God. And that prayer is so key. And that's what Paul would even continue in his letter to the Thessalonians. He would say, Pray constantly, verse 17. This pray without ceasing. Now, um, Last week we were traveling from Florida to Indiana and we stopped for a brief moment in Georgia where we spent 11 years of our life. And so we got off on Highway 80 and headed west to a little town called Lizella and that's where Natalie and I had bought our first house back in 2003. And uh, right out front of that house we loved it because there were these cherry blossom trees. And the cherry blossom trees would blossom every, uh, every spring. Beautiful, those pink, vibrant blossoms, and we would just get pictures, and we would hope that it would stay that way for a long time. And we just remember always getting comments about it. We'd always walk out there like, wow, look at those beautiful trees. And when you think about a tree and this idea of prayer, the tree's roots represent our connection to God through prayer. While its branches symbolize the blessings, the things that are visible, the roots, the connection through prayer, the branches become the symbol of the blessings that God gives to us through our faithful communication with Him. Let's talk for just a moment. What are those branches of blessing that come into our life because of the roots that are connected in communication with God? Communication with God brings healthy branches. What do those branches look like? I mean, Paul told us that peace comes from one of them. Because of good communication and connection with God in prayer, we'll experience peace that guards our mind and our heart through Christ Jesus. What's something else? Would you just say it? What else do we experience because of communication with God? Joy. Joy? Yeah, joy is definitely one. Patience. Patience, another blessing. What is it? Thankfulness, yep. Stability, that's a, that's a key blessing that comes with our communication with God. Anything else that you can think of? Yes, all of those, right? I didn't hear, yeah. She said comfort. comfort, ooh, that's a good one. Yep, comfort. Somebody had one over here? Discipline. Discipline, yeah, self-discipline in our life becomes, that helps us with our focus, doesn't it? yeah. Good, so these blessings come and they're clear that they are are visible not only to us but to others because of a close communication and relationship with God in that conversation, in that prayer. When somebody says, now look at that beautiful tree, like they would about those cherry blossom trees, they probably didn't think twice about the healthy root system. I never had anybody come to our house in Lysella, get out of the car and be like, wow, look at those beautiful cherry blossom trees. Now, look, I I think you've got a really good root system here for those trees. I bet they're getting a lot of uh, fertilization. I I think you're, you're trimming them well. I think this is really good. No, nobody commented on that. They just commented on the evidence of what was taking place. Now, when it starts to die, they realize that something as bad is happening with the root system. What, where are the cherry blossoms? How come it's not uh, fruitful? Why, why isn't it beautiful? What, what's going on here? As I said, we drove by it last week, and to our surprise, the four trees had been cut down. I'm like, what, what did they do? What have they done? And I, I didn't have the heart to knock on the door and investigate, but I'm sure it must have been because they died. I mean, nobody cuts down a cherry blossom tree unless there's a problem. The reality is, is when we see these trees, what an example that is, an illustration of the healthy branches producing something that is visible because of the healthy connection with the root system. And so, in our own Christian life, our prayer life is a a true representation of our connection and communion with God. I remember as a kid looking at this verse and thinking, pray without ceasing. And I would always look for the escape route to this verse. Well, it doesn't mean pray all day. I mean, as a kid, I would say, you can't just walk around with your head bowed and eyes closed, running into people and running into walls. And as a Christian kid, I was always thinking, oh, there's gotta, this, this doesn't mean something. This just means, you know, try to pray regularly. But I honestly believe here that this is a very natural response that Paul is saying is to stop and pray. It should become something as a very normal part of our day, a very normal part of our life. Yeah, we have the moment set aside for clear communication with God, but then it carries on into our day. Some of you are praying right now. I hope this guy stays on time. Like, we're ready, okay? I've got donuts to eat and coffee to drink, all right? And so we're just constantly in prayer, thoughtful prayers. The idea is stop and pray. If you need wisdom, stop and pray. You need a response to a situation, stop and pray. You need help, stop and pray, Now we understand we can, as Christians, we can pray with our eyes open, our heads up. We can be driving down the road. You don't have to stop in the middle of your class and tell your professor, wait, don't teach anymore. I need to stand and pray to the Almighty God. Would you all join me, please, as we pray? Now that's disruptive. You don't stop your workflow and get in trouble or written up because you are just always bowing your head in prayer when you're supposed to be producing and working. We don't do it in a dangerous way or a detrimental way. We keep our responsibilities and our roles, but we always have this attitude of constantly talking to the Father. It's that connection that is beautiful for us to hear from Him and and for Him to hear from us. On my whiteboard, my coach had given me a statement that, uh, as I say it, it might be confusing, but it, it says, Pray to see it slowly. And what he was telling me was, and in the midst of these circumstances that flood you so quickly, and naturally we have reactions, right? The kids are doing something that we don't approve of, or the spouse is responding in a way that we didn't jive with, or something at work's not going well, and we just have these very natural ways to respond quickly. And so the thought here is to pray to see it slowly means to let it process, give it a moment give it a thought, hand it over to God. How do I respond to my wife right now? How should I respond to my husband? How do I respond to my kids? How do I respond to my parents? How do I respond to my manager, my boss? How do I respond to this conflict? I'm being asked to do something that just doesn't jive right, so God, I need to, instead of just barking and biting, I need to just pray to see it slowly. How do I process what is coming at me right now? We don't really need excuses to pray less. We need motivation and reason to pray more. In the 18th century, John Wesley, who was a pastor and author, he emphasized the importance of a life that was filled with prayer. He once said, I have so much to do that I spend hours in prayer before I'm able to do it. That doesn't make sense to us today. We get out of bed, we get things rolling, we have our 30 minutes of devotions and prayer and then we got to get going. The reality is that so often in our life, we would see that much of what we do is fueled by that communication with God. That's why Paul says, pray constantly. Pray without ceasing. You're driving down the highway, have a conversation with God. You're getting ready to walk into the house after a long day at work, just talk to God, give it over to Him. You're facing conflict, you're facing affliction, you're facing uh, problems, pray to see it slowly, give it to God. In 2024, let's set out to experience God in a more and real personal way. So maybe do prayer walks around a particular place that has a significance or meaning to you. Um, Maybe do prayer bands where you join together over specific ways to intercede on the needs of your ministry. Or maybe do prayer challenges where people are serious about talking to God and, and about using One Hope Church to impact people's lives with the gospel. Let's look at making prayer an important part of our personal lives, and let's connect with God in a very fervent and passionate way. Let's become a ministry, a church, a people, a congregation that naturally turn to prayer before discussions, and prayer before debate, and prayer before decisions. Let's learn to break out of the mold and let's learn to allow the Holy Spirit freedom to move within our hearts. Let's be willing and wanting to pray with others over areas in our life that need to be poured out at the feet of Jesus and learn to build that fellowship and that connection with the church that God has given you. And look for that accountability. Look for that that beautiful relationship in community with the church that God has planted you in. And the last thought here is in verse 18. And he says, give thanks in all circumstances. So give thanks in all things. And who likes a, a good sandwich? Anybody like, you're just a, you're a Dagwood kind of sandwich. I don't know if anybody knows Dagwood. That's like an old comic. And he was just known for building the biggest and best sandwich. Now, if I were going to build a sandwich today, I'd like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Anybody with me on peanut butter and jelly? Okay, just one. Okay. Um, maybe a turkey and cheese, or maybe you, like, you go to those sub shops and they just build the sandwich. And, and this is a sandwich here because what Paul has done in these three simple verses is he's brought rejoicing and thanksgiving and put those as the bookend to a very key piece of prayer. And Christians are to be marked by Thanksgiving. Because being unthankful is the very essence of the unregenerated heart. The unsaved aren't thankful. Well, they have thankfulness within them. But you just think about it. We could have sat here for 20 to 30 minutes when Pastor David said, what do we rejoice God about? And there were things rattling off in your head. You're like, just give me a piece of paper. I'll write 20 down real fast. And some of you were able to say them out loud because you don't mind speaking in front of people. And others were like, please don't look at me. I don't want to answer, Okay. And you're just like, I'm going to keep it to myself. I am thankful. I am rejoicing. But it's for me, okay? And, um, and when he says here, in all circumstances, in the Greek, it refers to all that occurs in our life. And I, I can appreciate the clarity of the word circumstances, because circumstances really just represents everything about us, every circumstance that we face. And we're to give thanks in that. We're to find reason to be thankful. And this means that no matter the joys and the excitements, the victories or thrills that occur in the Christian's life, we're to give thanks. But it also means that no matter the struggles, the trials, the tests or difficulties, we are to give thanks. It is spiritually abnormal for Christians to be unthankful. So we have this thing built in us by the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to find gratitude, to experience gratitude. And when the early church would meet, one of their main purposes was to give thanks to God. Read throughout the New Testament. You would see even in the book of Acts so much gratitude and thanks given by the early church. Paul, in his writings, would give gratitude and thanks to the people that he was writing to. He would give thanks for the grace and mercy that has been experienced. But notice the last part of this verse. Paul's statement, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I see this attaching to all three commands in this passage. In Christ Jesus, we should express constant joy, constant prayer, and constant thanksgiving. In Romans chapter 5, you'll find that there is Paul writing to the Romans with the idea and purpose of rejoicing in hope, rejoicing in suffering or afflictions, and to rejoice in God. And the Romans would have understood this need in their own lives because of the conflicts and difficulties they were facing. And So today, this will of God for us is that we would find reason to give thanks in all things, in all circumstances. And the true gratitude in all circumstances is a choice, It is something that we have to be intentional about and maybe begin to practice, maybe learn to live it so that it becomes a very natural flow from us. I love this text. There's so much more that goes on into what Paul will finish off with this letter. Before these three verses, he he tells us to be encouragement to those with the authority in our lives as well as to those who watch us live. I was watching you as we worshiped together And you realize that as an outsider comes in, they will be able to experience the God we love and serve by watching and participating in worship together. The smiles on your face, the energy in your voice, the demeanor that you exhibited were all illustrations and testimonies. They were examples of a God who has changed and transformed your life. If you just come in and then go through routine with a frown on your face like this is the dumbest and boring thing in my life, then your testimony is one of no change, of nothing excitement, of no life that is alive. And so we don't want to put on a fake, like this facade. We don't want to pretend. We don't want to come in and, and do everything so people around us think everything's great in our life. There are times in our life where we're distressed. That's why we tell our music guy at, uh, in Florida, I know back in the day, I was a part of that, that time when your music guy would get up there and say, come on now, put a smile on your face. We're at church, right? We're, we're singing songs. Turn that frown upside down. But the reality is, and Kim referenced it, there is lamenting in our life at times. Like there is reason to, to be heavy laden and so it's not always wearing a smile or turning your frown upside down. Because sometimes life gets hard. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's chaotic. And so we just come as an offering to God that says, God, here's my messy moments. What will you do with it? It's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be distressed. It's okay to be discouraged as long as you give that over to God and say, God, do something with this. And then you allow him to take the broken pieces and put it together so that when you have your Paul and Silas moment in the nasty jail cell at Philippi, instead of complaining and looking for the easy route to escape, you can just simply rejoice. Rejoice always. Pray all the time, and then let's give thanks in all circumstances.